We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will Erskine booking a guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Unfortunately, the Toronto Maple Leafs have made it to the next round. What's next? Humans on the moon? Oh well, they lost last night, so let's hope it's a four-game sweep. Hey! Where's Boston? Here's Scott Thompson! What, 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 what? What is going on? That's not what I wrote. That's not the script I provided for the boy. How long have we been doing this now? Three years? And, you know, every uh, night he uh, graciously reads the intro for me and we play it the next day. This is the first one that he has changed and changed dramatically, I might add, as he is a Boston fan. So there you go. Uh, We may have to pull the intro from now on or get used to his creative license. There you go. Uh, Good afternoon. It is 309. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Thanks for joining us for the ride. Feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And the phone lines are always open at 905-645-3221. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. You can uh, join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the six, uh, sorry, 5 o'clock news. And playing the Bob Seeger today against the wind. Bob Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band, six-week run at number one on the U.S. album chart with Against the Wind on this day in 1980. There you go. So honoring the Bob Seeger today, as many of us did uh, yesterday with the passing of Gordon Lightfoot. All right, another uh, wacko day in the news. Leafs losing game one. Oilers in Vegas uh, tonight with game one. So hopefully we can get some uh, Canadiana happening today. Uh, the top story is still US, uh, sorry, um, interference by the Chinese Communist Party in Canadian life. And uh, the Prime Minister, although not in the House, is just getting hammered today by all levels of opposition. Uh, the Prime Minister is now saying that he has talked to CSIS and said anytime any of this information comes to uh, order in regard to interference on MPs to bring it right to him, uh, to share the info. Somebody's not telling the truth here because um, reports have been coming out through Global News and the Globe and Mail uh, for quite a long period of time. Well, a couple of years, actually in regard to Chinese interference in Canadian life, specifically the last two elections. We've certainly heard from uh, MP Michael Chong. Uh, he calls this a breakdown in the machinery of government or a political failure, as he and his family for the last two years targeted uh, by the Chinese Communist Party and election interference. The sad thing in all of this, the Prime Minister is pushing this on to CSIS, saying it's their fault. And and he's instructed them now, if they get any information like this, to bring it to him. Although the head of CSIS has said repeatedly, it's been reported, that they have all of the information. Also, during testimony, the Prime Minister's own Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, said nothing gets by the Prime Minister. He sees everything. So who is not telling the truth here? And why would CSIS, why would the media be finding this stuff out, but yet the Prime Minister isn't aware of it. The media is finding out, but the prime minister has no idea that this is going on. How can anybody 
possibly have confidence in this. And here's what the Prime Minister had to say. Here's a couple of clips put together about just realizing this, I guess, on Monday. And if he did just realize it on Monday, how does that happen? Either he's not in touch or somebody's not telling him. Like he, he's, he's fibbing here. And uh, again, it, it just seems to go around in circles with the prime minister refusing to take responsibility. Here's what he had to say. We're making it very, very clear to CSIS and all our intelligence officials that when there are concerns that talk specifically about any MP, particularly about their family, those need to be elevated, even if CSIS doesn't feel that it's a sufficient level of concern for them to take more direct action, we still need to know about it uh, at the, uh, at the uh, upper government levels. We are making that direction now. Uh, we are making it clear to CSIS that when it involves an MP, even if it's not hitting a threshold that they would previously think needs to be highlighted. They constantly make decisions around what is a credible threat, what is a non-credible threat. They are professionals who make that evaluation. And what I'm saying is, even if it's a less than threshold threat, according to their views, if it regards an MP or an MP's family, it should be passed up uh, going forward. CSIS said, and the reporting says, it is, it has been passed up. This chief of staff says nothing is kept from the prime minister. Now he's changing the channel and making it sound as if he's given some new directive to CSIS. Anytime any of this happens, you got to bring it to me. He's making it sound as if CSIS didn't think this was important, so they didn't consider it a threat. Again, CSIS is there to provide him with intelligence information. What he does with it afterwards is up to the prime minister of the country, and he chose to do nothing. And now he's backpedaling greatly and again, you know, putting question in people's minds about, you know, how, how, how safe are our institutions, how trustworthy, how transparent are our institutions. This man is dividing the country to save his own arse. It's as simple as that. And how many more, more examples of this do we need before the man finally steps down? Let's be serious here. He is assuming or, or trying to present the facts, the, the, the idea, that we're all to assume that CSIS didn't tell him this because CSIS didn't deem it a threat. Yet they're leaking information in order to get these points across? Why? Well, because the prime minister is doing nothing about it. How does the media know more about this stuff than the prime minister does? Especially when the prime minister's chief of staff testifies that nothing is kept from him. Michael Chong was a target for the last two years, and they did nothing. They did nothing. Why? Because in the majority of cases, it favors the liberal party. And now he's standing up and questioning our institutions and pretending like they didn't tell me this. Well, they're telling everybody else. How did you miss it? Unbelievable that our prime minister can stand up there and pull this stunt with Canadians. And for some reason, with the fancy socks, nothing seems to resonate with Canadians. I don't get it. And hopefully now that somebody's family has been targeted, they will finally take notice. 
The Hamilton Police Service have started using automatic license plate readers and in-car cameras in vehicles. And it's, you know, it's funny when you think how far technology has come and how much we've started to use it during the global pandemic. This almost seems like old news now. Uh, uh, the Hamilton Police Service says it will help with investigations, uh, wanted, missing people, auto theft, unattached plates, all that sort of thing. And to talk more about all of this, Sergeant Scott Moore is with us, Strategic Initiative Branch, Hamilton Police Service, and is with us now. Scott, thank Thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, thank you for having me, Scott. Yeah, um, so tell us tell us about this technology. Let's start with the automatic license plate readers. What does this do? How does this work? So this is old technology, but we are using it in a new way. So auto- automated license plate readers have been around for a long time, and you may have recognized them on other cruisers. We had one driving around in the city a few years ago. Um, with the city. They were cameras mounted on the roof of a car. You might have seen three or four cameras uh, pointing out from the windshield. So what these do is they read license plates and they pull the digit from the license plate and they compare it to what's called a hot list. So they aren't running the plate in the traditional sense. What they're doing is just comparing the digit to want this hot list of vehicles that we may be interested in. And so while the, the old systems with the cameras on the roof of the car um, are a thing of the past, some areas still use them, we're using what's called an integrated system. So it's an in-car camera and a license plate reading system. So it'll be all in one unit that you won't see. It'll be mounted on the inside of the windshield. Ah, so uh, one device does both uh, jobs here. Yes, that's correct. So would this be similar to like what we would see like on a toll highway when you they record your plate as you're passing through? So they do every vehicle that passes a cruiser that has the in-car camera and automated license plate reader system, every plate is read. And what happens is that plate information, the, the digits off the license plate are compared to what's on the hot list. If a vehicle is on the hot list, the officer will get notified. If it's not on the hot list, then that data gets uh, destroyed. We don't keep that data. So what does this replace? How is it different? And I'll jump in and just say, so as opposed to an officer who has to stop a car or actually has to manual, manually put that information in. So it's, it's different in that, you're right, that the officers aren't having to run plates that they're mm-hmm. interested in finding offenses for. The system is doing it for them. So every day we get an updated hot list from the Ministry of Transportation, and that involves includes everything from unattached license plate, expired validation stickers. A lot of people are forgetting that they can register, renew their license plate online for free now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you don't have to pay for the validation sticker, but you still have to renew your license plate. So expired validation stickers, unattached license plate, suspended drivers, criminal warrants, stolen autos, all of those things get put on the hot list. And as the officer is driving around, it's actually looking for those vehicles for the officer. Wow, that is that's incredible. So virtually any car that you would pull behind, it would automatically read the plate. Yeah, so the way the system works is it runs off a 60-degree angle out front of the car. So it's basically reading every license plate in a three-lane uh, spread in front of the cruiser about three car lengths ahead. So it catches so, that much of a range. And so, wow, you could do you could do like two or three plates at a time then? It's actually, if it can see the plate, it can read the plate. It's not just wow. a one or two plates at a time. 
right. It's dealing with every vehicle in front of it. How has that changed? How has that changed the role of the officer? How has that increased? Because uh, you would imagine that this would be detecting things quite regularly. Uh, it's detecting. Uh, we're still in our training phase, so our officers are just getting trained up on the systems. And what we're seeing is the 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 hits that come in. There's a lot of people with expired validation stickers. Oh, so many that our officers aren't able to keep up with it. So there's a, a, a good piece of information right there. Even though you don't need to get your sticker, you've still got to go online and register your plate every year. Otherwise, you'll show up. All right, talk about the in-car camera, how that will be a piece of all of this. So the, the system has two cameras in it. There's a front-facing camera that's beside the lens for the plate reader. And there is an interior camera in our prisoner compartment. So um, the officer, uh, if they activate their lights, if they hit a certain speed, if, it's, if the cruiser is involved in a collision, those automatically trigger the front-facing camera. And the officer can also manually trigger it through buttons on the system or a button on the microphone that the officer wears. So that manually triggers the video recording. Um, and if we put a prisoner, if we have to put someone in the back of our cruiser for transportation, then that turns on the rear seat camera, so they're all they're recorded as well. So, uh, how many uh, vehicles would have this, and do you plan on doing this with every vehicle? So, at the moment, we have ten cruisers in the city that are, are running the system. We have um, two uh, two for every division, and three for traffic safety. And there's one that we're using for t- uh, training and testing. In September, towards the end of September, we're rolling it out to 68 additional cruisers. So in the end, we'll have 78 cars uh, around the city with this um, system running. Unbelievable. Uh, Hamilton Police Service uh, using new technology. Have you started using automatic license plate readers and in-car cameras in vehicles? Sergeant Scott Moore with a strategic initiative branch, Hamilton Police Service. Scott, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Good luck. Thanks. Thanks for having me. We certainly know that the uh, the uh, federal public service, the majority of them that were out on strike, have gone back. However, uh, the Canada revenue strike is still in full swing. And when you think about it, it probably affects the average Canadian more uh, than the rest of them, unless, of course, you're traveling and you're in need of a passport and such. But everybody files a tax return. Some wait for a refund. Others uh, want to call and get some advice. The Can- uh, Canadian Federation of Independent Business is calling on the government to end the CRA strike, citing financial harm to small businesses amid tax season uncertainty. To talk about all of this, Christina Santini is with us, Senior Policy Analyst for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and is with us now. Christina, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well, and thanks for having me with you, Scott. It's interesting because I think this may affect more people than the first strike with the, with the other employees. How does this affect small business? Small businesses have many interactions with CRA. It's not just about filing annual income tax returns. It's also about filing GST and HST, which collects on behalf of the government in which it has to remit within a certain time frame. Otherwise, they face penalties and interest. They also have to remit CPP and EI. They're sort of collectors for the government without being compensated from it, but they definitely get a stick if they're late and they're unable to answer questions um, or get, sorry, get answers to their questions to call the support lines they would usually be able to call. Um, Some have already articulated difficulty accessing certain portals. So it's uh, 
making it a bit difficult for them to meet their obligations and in the end could cause them in terms of fines because there's been no flexibility shown in terms of deadlines. Um, so those, that is why we're encouraging both parties to come to an agreement quickly or for the government to introduce back-to-work legislation. Are you surprised after the other one settled that this one is still outstanding? Uh, admittedly, we thought the two would follow suit fairly quickly once one had set a precedent for the other. Um, it would be interesting to know more as to what are the main issues that are uh, holding things out. Um, and uh, as I mentioned, it'd be great for them to conclude things uh, very quickly for all Canadians to get their refunds and for businesses to be able to operate normally and not be concerned about what the penalties they will face. We certainly knew with the other strike, uh, they were they were talking about remote work. They were talking about 3% a year over three years. They eventually settled at 12% over four years and such. But it doesn't appear like we're hearing any of that from the CRA. Apparently, uh, at, at very different positions and are asking for more. Uh, again, but you're not aware of what the holdup is. Is that accurate? Uh, we're aware of the initial ask. So initially, they were asking for a 9% uh, salary readjustment, followed by 4.5, 8%, and 8% increases. So a total of 30 plus percent. Um, I believe that's gone down to 22.5 based on the information we found online, but we haven't heard anything since. And uh, obviously that's, you know, you're talking about one angle and that is small business doing business with the government. How does the uh, solution that was arrived at, the contract that was arrived at, how does that affect Canadian Federation of Independent Business? Um, Ultimately, we'll all be paying taxes that will pay for the agreement that comes up. So we are hoping that whatever whatever agreement is reached, it's one that's affordable for taxpayers whether it be the Canadian individual income taxpayer or Canadian business taxpayers, will be footing the bill for years to come because these are going to be persistent wage increases. They're just—they're not just one-time payments for, the, for a good part of it. It's salary increases that we're going to be paying on an ongoing manner. Are you concerned now that the other one, the larger one, has settled, that this is sort of the issue is dropped by the wayside and perhaps Canadians aren't paying as much attention to this? Um. I believe there's as much attention being brought to it, um, but the unions would be able to best speak. speak. And admittedly, we've made statements on it, and I know we're not the only ones that have flagged the issue. Uh, So I doubt that it's completely lost and uh, forgotten. Uh, with the increase, m- many said when uh, when the union was striking uh, the first time that they were doing it for the rest of the workforce as well, because if they see government uh, wages go up this way, then the private industry will have to follow suit. How does the Canadian Federation of Independent Business fall uh, feel about that? Uh, we do feel that there is the, the chance that we'll raise expectations instead of precedents. Ultimately, you know, private sector employers will pay what what they can, but they can't necessarily compete with the the federal government in every single circumstances. Some employers will have a bigger ability to pay, others will not. Um, In a survey of our small business uh, owners, uh, they planned on average a 3.3% pay increase over the next year. Some more, some less, but on average it was was around 3.3%. So it all comes down to what they can pay and what cost they can pass on because they need to get the cash from somewhere. And what are you hearing from members in regard to the CRA strike? 
Um, mainly that they haven't been able to get access to the service lines and they haven't been able to um, uh, access certain systems. Uh, ultimately, they're also asking us to, to ensure, to hold the government to account that this remains an affordable agreement. Um, I think PBO will be in the best position to tell us whether or not this is something uh, government coffers will be able to sustain based on future growth. And sorry, PBO is the parliamentary budget officer. And the tax deadline, I understand, for business is a little later than it is for the rest of us. Is that accurate? Um, so they had to pay any amounts owing uh, earlier, but they only actually have to file the taxes um, in June. And are you hoping that you won't have to wait that long to get some service that your members are looking for? Absolutely. We are. We want to make sure those that filing process goes in smoothly. And as I referenced, that's just one part of all the interactions they have with government. There's also those monthly and quarterly remittance for sales taxes and payroll taxes. Uh, we're hearing from uh, the union president that uh, they're not happy accusing the government of playing games uh, and are planning to protest um, uh, outside the Liberal Convention on Thursday in Ottawa. Hillary Clinton is going to be there and such. Um, are, are you? Do you get the feeling that this is moving as quickly as the last one did? It seems that this one it just doesn't seem to be as much attention. It seems to be dragging on. E- I would note that it also seems to be that they have a greater differential. Or, sorry, in French, the word would be ical. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a greater gap for them to bridge. And so that could potentially explain why it's taking more time to come to a resolution. Ultimately, both parties should be at the table actively seeking a resolution as soon as possible. Um, any word on if they're uh, talking about back-to-work legislation or in any way moving this forward? Any action on the way? We've called for it, but haven't heard about it at all coming from the political parties. All right. Christina Santini with us, Senior Policy Analyst for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. They are feeling the pinch from the CRA strike, uh, citing it will do financial harm to small business, uh, especially during tax season, if this does not get addressed. Christina, uh, Christina, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Be well. Hamilton's Dr. Disc smashes a single-day sales record on Record Store Day. They have seen the vinyl wax and wane over the years, but going strong so far. To talk more about all of this, Mark Farukawa is with us, owner of Dr. Disc and member of the Hamilton Music Strategy, and with us now. Mark, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Oh, doing great. Thank you so much for the uh, allowing me to come on your show, Scott. Really appreciate it. So you've been around for a while. You've been doing this since 1991. So you've seen quite a few changes in ebbs and flow in all of this over the years. Yeah, the the most remarkable thing that um, I, I can you know remember or recall is the recent resurgence in in vinyl records. It's a, it's the first time sort of we've adopted an old technology. And when I say we, the general public, you know, you want the newest car, the newest phone, the newest gadget, and here we are going back to records which are like you know 100 years old now. So we've actually gone backwards, which to me is kind of comforting somehow. <laughs> And, you know, it seems that there seems to be phases of this. I remember like five years ago, my daughter was into it and, you know, couldn't believe it when all of a sudden started pulling things out of a milk crate and such. And then it dies a bit and then it comes back. But it seems we're in a a real high point right now. How do you explain that? Yeah, I I don't. I don't know. You know, you can you can say it's the sound with with digital technology. You can make, you know, any digital 
sound or file sound like a record, you know, so I don't think it's really the sound. I think it's the that people really understand and even the new generation, maybe it's a little um, throwback or like rebelling against all this technology and convenience kind of thing. People understand that that objects contain, you know, an emotional history with, with the, the owner and they tell stories on their own. And I think people really want that over convenience of just having all their music in a phone, for example. You know, you bring up a very valid point, Mark. And, and you know, I'm back in the day where, you know, the milk crates and the collection. It, yeah. What about the collection part of it? Because even, you know, you talk about phones. My kids say, I, I, I'm keep, I still collect stuff. I, whatever yeah. I had, I, it's on my phone. I still right. buy stuff on my phone. I don't have a service. Because right. to me, I need a collection. Is that sure. what it's about? I, I think so. I think that's a big part of it because, you know, we're, we're human. As humans, we collect things that remind us of something momentous toes and things like that. So I think a big part of it is not, you know, you, you don't show, you don't say, hey, here's my music collection and point at a hard drive or your phone that, you know, it doesn't yeah. really have any relevance. And the same thing, you know, I always say, my example is what was the first album you bought? And it doesn't matter how old you are, you, you know who you were with, where you got, how much you paid for it, what it was. But if you ask someone, what was your first download? It's so arbitrary, right? Like, yeah. unless it's a physical object, you know, that you can uh, have memories with. And music's a really social thing. You remember who you listened to a certain record with and what you were doing at the time and things like that. So I think, you know, people really have sort of rebelled against just convenience of having a, a technological device that has all their music on it or all their films or all their, you know, like there's a big resurgence in, 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 in film photography now as well, you know. But I think the records are really just like people just really understand the value of music it's just more than having music in your ears it's more of a social thing and it's a collector's thing and it's an emotional thing and it seemed like the album cover and the liner notes were all part of the deal you'd put oh, it on yeah. and then spend the next hour reading it all yeah, I mean, a, a true artist will, you know, they'll sequence their album in a certain way. They'll pick the 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 way the jacket looks or the artwork on, the, and and it's their their larger format. So it's not like a CD where it's really small, and it's not like your phone screen where it's even smaller. You know, you've got these beautiful um, jackets. They'll they'll you know, look at the printing process, include whether it's colored vinyl or they'll include a poster, you know, try and try and fit a poster in a phone yeah. CD, you can't. So, I mean, there's all these layers to it than just, it's more than the music. So I think people understand that. Talk a little bit about new artists who are also releasing vinyl. We had Tom Wilson on a while ago. He was oh, talking yeah. about Junk House being released yeah. for this deal and Taylor Swift's yeah. doing it. What, where's the interest for new artists? Well, it's it's interesting because it really started at a grassroots level. Record Store Day started around 13 years ago, and it was just a bunch of independent music store owners getting together and saying, hey, let's try and highlight what we do because music at that point didn't, well, vinyl at that point wasn't really in, a, in an upswing yet. And they really, with Record Store Day, celebrated that. And where it's gotten to a point now is, I mean, Metallica were on board from day one. Like they, I think they were the first year's or second year's music ambassadors for record store day and they were a big deal and helped it get on the radar but now you're right like major artists like taylor swift was probably our best seller for for this past record store day and it's that kind of um i guess you'd say groundswell or such an artist who has such an effect on their fans so she by um putting out exclusive releases on record store day sort of drives her fans like in a good way to go into physical stores and she's actually 
really been really supportive of uh, independent record stores. There was a store in Texas called Grimey's that was on the verge of going out of business, and she actually gave them money. So she's really supportive, and mm. she understands, even though she's a younger and you'd call her popular mainstream artist, who, and she's extremely wealthy. She doesn't have to do that, but she really understands the value of music and the fact that a lot of grassroots mom-and-pop record stores launch the careers of major artists, you know, because they'll play stuff that isn't on the radio or on hmm. streaming and they'll have, they'll stock really obscure things that people are looking for like we do. And so uh, she understands that. And a lot of major artists come on board um, with doing these exclusive um releases for record store day so that sort of forces their fans mm. to buy the collectible item buy them on record store day and it gets them off their bums out of their bedrooms you know off their phones and gets them in the stores which is which is fantastic we quickly mark the tell everybody flux of of new customers on that day tell everybody where you're located mark we're at 20 wilson street just off the corner of wilson and james streets in downtown hamilton and we've proudly been downtown in the same location since 1991 Mark Furukawa with us, owner of Dr. Disc, member of the Hamilton Music Strategy team, selling more vinyl now than, uh, boy, in an awful long time. Mark, long good luck time. with this moving forward. Thank you so much, Scott. Have a great day. You too. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots of chatter around EVs and car plants and, and that are switching over and, and the uh, Canadian auto industry uh, keeping up and such. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, recently in New York talking about trade and minerals and all that sort of thing. And I remember hearing this report a long time ago, and I, I'm not sure that everybody is aware of um, of, of the uh, evasiveness of mining. And again, I, I'm not against any of this. It, it's all got to be balanced. It's all got to be done in the most environmentally friendly way. But at the end of the day, uh, it is going to take a combination of sources in order in order to get us to the uh, to the renewables uh, where, where we all know we need to get. Fascinating uh, stats coming out. Uh, mining creates more pollutants than any other industry in North America, according to a new report, a new report from uh, the Commission of Environmental Cooperation. Uh, as it stands right now, uh, mining, uh, the, the biggest polluter in Canada is a coal mine in British Columbia. Uh, the biggest polluters, 54% mining, 16% oil and gas, 7% utilities, 6% metal manufacturing, and then it goes down from there. Uh, 7 of, the, of 10 of the biggest polluters uh, in North America are mining. To talk more about all of this, Orlando Cabrera is with us, head of the Environmental Quality Unit at the Commission for Environmental Cooperation, and is with us now. Orlando, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, thank you, Scott, and thank you for the invitation, and uh, we are doing very well. Uh, Orlando, uh, again, uh, we're trying to have a discussion, balance all of this, get to a cleaner environment as quickly as we can. Uh, I think majority of Canadians want to get there. Where they differ is how do we get there? Um, and now uh, we hear so much about developing the ring of fire, uh, minerals that are needed for computer chips or electric vehicles or what have you. Canada obviously sitting on an abundance of this, as we are a lot of natural resources. Are Canadians aware that this is as evasive as it is. How do we balance all of this moving forward? Well, um, that's actually the, at the core of what we do here at the Commission, especially with the Techie Stock Report, which our 16th 
um, a edition of the report. We just uh, uh, published this week, and we take a look at pollutant releases and transfers. These are reported pollutant releases and transfers from the industry sector in North America. This includes Canada, US, and Mexico. And we look at what is reported in every country so that we can have a, a better knowledge of the amounts, the types of pollutants that are reported, where those pollutants are reported, whether it's to water, to land, to air, whether they are transferred to recycling, where they are uh, transferred to disposal, and then have that information available to the public and to the industry and to governments so proper decisions can be made with regards to pollution prevention and reductions. And uh, as you well put it, you know, we have um, is in the case of the mining industry, mining is a very important um, economic activity. Um, a lot of consumer products from electric cars to cell phones that we consume um, come from that activity. But that activity produces also pollution that have to be managed and the way to manage it is by actually having an accounting of it. And once we have that accounting, we can make decisions. And it that's seems what we though, present, uh, in the report. It seems that we're spending all of our time talking about the oil and gas industry here in Canada, and we never talk about coal. Um, and and, and I, I've said this many times on this show. Why are we not, instead of trying to shut off everything and go to industries that aren't there yet, why aren't we using liquid natural gas to get us off of coal? We've seen this with the FASCO here in, uh, in Hamilton as they move to electrify their furnaces and such. But it seems we don't, we never talk about that. All we talk about is how polluting oil and gas is when in fact mining is, is, is a lot more, uh, of a pollutant. Are we substituting one for the other uh, in order to do this? Are we having well, that discussion? You have to put it into context. And, and actually, that's a point that we make in the report. When you look at the amounts reported, you have to also look at uh, the medium of release of that pollutant, whether it's to air and water. If you look at, at, in Canada, for example, um, if you look at what is the industrial sector that um, reports the largest amounts of air contaminants is not the mining. It is the electric sector, specifically the coal-fired uh, power plants. Um, in terms of the mining sector, when you look at all pollutant releases and transfers, the overall um, uh, amounts of uh, pollutants uh, released and managed or handled in that specific industry, then yes, the mining is up. But most, 99% of those uh, reported substances are to what are called disposal, on-site disposal or off-site disposals to land. Uh, for example, in a mine, you may have uh, the tailing spawns, uh, you know, there's the extraction operation, there's the processing, the waste go, go into the tailing ponds or the waste rock, goes into this uh, holding 
um, areas, and that has to be reported because um, that includes chemicals that are used in the extraction process or chemicals or substances that are already in the soil, but they are moved from one place right. to another. So let me ask you this. Has to sorry. Be accounted for. Let me ask you this, Orlando. Yeah. Should we be using liquid natural gas, Canadian natural gas, more to alleviate coal from the rest of the world? It seems that's the biggest pollutant. Why are we not using cleaner energies to, su- to substitute? Well, in... Um, when you look at coal versus natural gas, okay, um, yes, coal has a, a number of uh, trace elements like mercury, lead, arsenic, cadmium, a lot of heavy metals that are uh, toxic substances, okay, and those are emitted to the air. If you want to scrub that from the coal, then that ends up into the water or it could end up into a landfill. Uh, that is used to deposit uh, coal ash, okay? Um, If you move to a cleaner fuel, um, uh, then you reduce uh, those emissions to the air and water and land. However, every single, um, let's say, even it is cleaner, it still has an environmental right. impact. No, we all we all we know that there's still. We know. I got to cut you off, Orlando. I got to cut you off, Orlando, because we're plumb right out of time. I'm just saying which one is cleaner than the other to use as we get there. Orlando Cabrera, with us, head of the Environmental Quality Unit at the Commission for Environmental Cooperations, we'll have you on again, Orlando. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we certainly know about uh, Chinese Communist Party interference alleged, allegedly in the last two uh, federal elections. And now the latest um, uh, conservative MP Michael Chong, his family targeted uh, over the last two years in regard to uh, interference in elections and such. Um, Prime Minister saying he didn't know anything about it and he has now directed CSIS to share any info like this. Uh, why they don't do that already is bizarre, and especially with the CSIS head uh, reportedly saying many, many times they've got the information. And Katie Telford, the chief of staff of the prime minister, saying nothing gets by him. He is shown everything. Well, how did we get to where we are? Let's bring in Tim Powers, chairman, Summa Strategies, managing director, Abacus Data, and with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well, Scott, doing well. I, this is like trying to figure out one of those old Rubik's Cubes, and I can tell you, I was never good at getting them sorted. I don't know about you. Uh, with all due respect, team, I don't think this has anything to do with the complexity of a Rubik's Cube. I think it's quite simple. I just think we have two people that are telling two completely different stories, and the Prime Minister is weaving a great big pile of BS. I'm thinking that, I'm getting that across all party lines. This is... This is this containable, Tim. This is getting out of hand. It's getting ridiculous. A few things on it, Scott. My point about the Rubik's cube, to add some levity uh, to all of this, uh, is that that this story just gets so so spun in so many different directions. But what the one thing that is consistent about it is it does appear that whatever the truth is, the government is. <laughs> out at to lunch when it comes to um, security and the management of the China relationship and protecting Canadians from whatever they need to be protected from, Um, whether you accept the prime minister's version of the story or you don't. So why didn't he know if he 
telling the truth and didn't know it. To your point, shouldn't he have known this? And if he did know, why didn't they do something about it uh, as it related to Michael Chong? None of this, whatever way you turn the cube, is good for the government, is my point. And the people who must be laughing at this, Scott, have to be the Chinese. I mean, they have to be saying, what a mess we've created for the Canadians. They can't even figure out what the story is, how to get it straight. Maybe they're exaggerating the influence we have. Maybe they're not. It doesn't matter. It makes us look like we're running circles around uh, the Canadian government, and that must make Beijing happy. Uh, I've often said this is the most divisive prime minister of my uh, life. I know I'm getting too personal in this, and that makes me biased. But I'm very, very frustrated with this, Tim. Um, He talks about how the other parties specifically the conservatives are dividing the country and creating a lack of trust in our institutions he has just thrown ceases under the bus tim he's just thrown a trusted institution under the bus this man has got to be stopped uh and and and, well, and clearly that's in retribution scott and again i it doesn't excuse it. Uh, he, 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 ceases has gone after him. And again, none of this helps Canadians. But let, let's go back to the MP and the question at the center of this, right? So Michael Chuck, I don't know if you know Michael. I've known Michael for a long time. Yep. Uh, he's a good, decent parliamentarian. He's the sort of parliamentarian that we all wish we had more of. He's there. He does his homework and the like. If I'm Michael Chung, I'm, I'm behaving the way he is right now. How... Would any of us want a threat against our family to be withheld from us? Not, we don't know about it. I mean, that in and of itself is so unacceptable. And so what in the system is wrong? So, yeah, Trudeau and what he's doing or not doing, I mean, this has got to be fixed wherever the breakdown is. And, yes, Scott, I agree with you. Like, you know, the prime minister, Pierre Polyev has his faults. But Justin Trudeau uh, wears a lot of blame as well for sowing division in this country. Uh, And again, I'll say it for a second time, the Chinese have to be laughing at us saying, wow, these guys can't figure it out. Uh, And what a mess that is. Uh, Isn't it already reported that CSIS has sent this information dating back to 2021 and 2019? Didn't the CSIS head, through these reports and such, already confirm that the PMO, the Prime Minister's Office, has this information? And then Katie Telford saying uh, at committee, anything that comes in goes right to his office. He sees everything. So how could it possibly be that he didn't see this? Yeah, there's, this seems to be anchored around this directive of 2019. I think it's September of 2019 that a directive was was given by the public safety minister, which would be the minister that oversees ceases to to say that you know um, you need to do better ceases or we, right, I'm paraphrasing here on reporting incidents like the one Michael Chong is uh, has been subject to, according to the to the Globe and Mail. So your question's a fair one, because as Michael Chong himself has said, uh, quoting Katie Telford, and you quoted her accurately then, that the prime minister sees all these matters. So you know, in some strange world, maybe they can justify uh, not having seen it. Uh, and But maybe, again, that tells a, a different story of the 
the, um, the the lack of trust between the political masters and the security services. Again, a problem that is not a good one, and another one that is not helpful to this government and to this country, more importantly. Uh, he went on to say the prime minister that CISA said it didn't meet the threshold of concern. Yeah. That is not the question, Tim. The question is when and why and how did he get this information and why he didn't do anything about it. It's got nothing to do with thresholds, and he spoke up many times in saying, CSIS doesn't tell us what to do, they just give us the information. So threshold of concern is just a red herring. It is not the question. The question is, did he know this was going on, or did he not know? Well, <laughs> I would hope if Michael Chong knew something that the Chinese were doing about Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's family in wherever X family was, that the threshold of concern would be met there. So, yeah, he, he, the, the, there's, as always the case around national security um, discussions, some fine language that has so much imprecision in it, Scott, you could drive a truck through it as you have uh, a moment ago. I, I, the thing that, you know, back to the politics of this and, and your anger, and rightly so, and, and anger that others feel towards the prime minister, this story, though, still, and it should be, is not getting deep into the Canadian consciousness. So, Again, the prime minister is probably hoping that that will continue, but that doesn't excuse any of this. But right now, the public is not focused on this story. They're focused on whether they can pay their bills or not. Uh, and that may be the only sort of lifeline or one of the lifelines that Justin Trudeau has out of uh, whatever fancy um, truck drive-through language that uh, may exist for him right now. It'll be fascinating to see. We'll chat again, Tim. Tim Powers with us, Chairman Summa Strategies, Managing Director of Abacus Data. I could go on for an hour with this uh, with I you, Tim, that, but uh, unfortunate we're restricted to time. <laughs> Thank you, Tim, so much. You might have seen this bizarre video. Uh, the Kremlin, the, Kre the Kremlin, the Kremlin says that a drone attack has taken place, uh, over Russian soil. You can see the video of something going overhead and then blowing up. Uh, it didn't appear to be that big, that dangerous. Uh, that being said, President Zelensky of the Ukraine says, not us. We did not attempt to assassinate Putin. Uh, they're too busy fighting their own war. Let's bring in, uh, Arl Brown, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and is with us now. Arl, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Thank you. What are your thoughts when you see this video? Um, it, it looks kind of bizarre, uh, and, and doesn't look like it would pack enough punch to do anything. Uh, what do we know about it? Did, did China, or sorry, did Russia take it down? They claim that they used electronic means to force an explosion on these uh, drones, and that consequently the drones were not able to achieve the goals that were set up, uh, but the timing and the way the Kremlin is publicizing this is both curious and mysterious. We don't know if this is a deflection, if it's projection. It would hardly seem to be the, in the interest of the Kremlin to publicize this because uh, though they want to point the finger at Ukraine and perhaps create a justification for a new terror campaign, it also would tend to indicate uh, puzzling weakness. Let's not forget that Moscow is one of the most heavily defended places on earth. 
that Vladimir Putin has for years now touted the effectiveness of Russian weapons and has claimed, in fact, that Russia has weapons that are unmatched by the West. So how does it look that slow-moving drones could penetrate several hundred miles through Russian territory, go all the way to the Kremlin, this is indeed a case of uh, drones from Ukraine, and come this close to the heart of the center of power in Moscow. It is not a good image. So it leaves us wondering, why are they so heavily publicizing it in Moscow? Uh, I agree. It would make them look weak. Was it maybe not Ukraine, but somebody else internally doing this? This is what we don't know. If this is a false flag operation, or uh, uh, is it uh, some kind of internal issue? Clearly, Vladimir Putin has enemies within. There are various uh, players who are not satisfied. We know there are tensions between the military and the Wagner group. So uh, there are infinite numbers of possibilities. We are now operating very much as in the Soviet days. We are reduced to kind of a reading of tea leaves and see where the players are placed. But so many things here just do not make sense. If this was a Ukrainian operation, the fact that it could reach uh, all the way to the Kremlin, that would indicate capabilities that are spectacularly uh, uh, clever and and effective, even if uh, they did not actually hit Vladimir Putin. But at the same time, if the Ukrainians were so uh, adept at this, how could they not know, trying to keep all the time a close eye on the movements of President Putin, that President Putin, according to his own state uh, uh, spokesman, was not in the Kremlin? And, and if you want to assassinate Vladimir Putin, you hardly are going to do it by using drones to attack buildings um, and hoping that somehow Putin would be in one of those buildings and that he would be effectively eliminated. So there are so many different possibilities. But I think the most curious element is here the reaction from so-called moderates like Medvedev, the former prime minister and president, who now is calling for the harshest possible measures against Ukraine, or the Speaker of the Duma, who's saying now this uh, should allow Russia the excuse, basically, to try to eliminate President Zelensky. And we know that there were, in the past, multiple attempts by Russia to try to assassinate President Zelensky. And so is this a prelude to some kind of Russian uh, escalation? Is this building the case to excuse some huge terror attacks by Russia on Ukrainian territory. So would this be Russia, if I'm understanding you correctly, uh, Russia thinking that they're going to fool the Russians into thinking that, you know, uh, Ukraine just sent a drone over here and tried to assassinate Putin, and then therefore we have to attack them. Are Russians going to fall for that? Uh, you know, if you see the video, it looks pretty harmless. We uh, look at Russia through a kind of Western lens. And if we follow that logic, by now, uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, support in Russia should have collapsed. People in Russia surely ought to be aware that they have taken huge losses, that the goals laid out have not been achieved, that Ukraine is not some figment of uh, 
Western imagination and conspiracy that it's a real country, that the uh, government in uh, Kiev has genuine support and they're fighting back. More than a year has passed. And yet uh, opinion polls in Russia, to the extent that they are credible, show that Vladimir Putin still has a high level of support. And if that is indeed the case, then it is because the Kremlin controls uh, the media, the most important elements of the media, television, where most Russians get their news. Opposition parties cannot speak effectively. There are no demonstrations allowed on the street. And as such, with the control of information, it's very difficult for Russians to get the right kind of information and to form an independent opinion. And perhaps the Kremlin is uh, hoping that they can further manipulate the Russian public to continue to generate uh, support. And that might be one explanation, but we just don't know. We need to wait uh, a few days, perhaps, or uh, even longer to see what the Russians are going to do. Are they going to use this as an excuse to launch some massive new uh, terror attacks? I mean, the attacks on the ground uh, have not been successful, but they have launched uh, missiles twice in significant numbers over the past few days. They've killed civilians, including children. They could be targeting more civilians and use this as an excuse. And this is why at the moment, we are just getting fragments of information that we are trying to piece together. So there are vast numbers of variable variables, and uh, I think we're just in the realm of speculation so far. Aro Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of, Tor- of Toronto. Kremlin, a drone attack saying that it was an assassination attempt on Putin. Is it an excuse just to ramp things up? Oral, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you for having me on. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The Prime Minister's older brother is testifying a committee into uh, the Trudeau Foundation and uh, alleged interference by the Chinese Communist Party. He said he had no reason to doubt the donor's motives who signed over that big check uh, that uh, obviously had ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, All right, there we go on that. Uh, Canada's intelligence agency must inform the government if there are threats made against any MP or their family, said Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. You would think that would be normal standards of operation. Uh, The Prime Minister saying he knew nothing about anything involving Michael Chong or this election interference, uh, yet his chief of, of staff says nothing gets by him everything that comes into the office his eyes see and reported earlier that the head of CSIS has said that this information was delivered in a timely manner uh safety minister mendicino saying uh it is up to CSIS to get this info to the prime minister's office in a timely manner it's it appears that somebody is not telling the truth here uh let's bring in christian leprec uh christian has been a guest before professor at both the royal military college of canada queen's university and fellow at the donald laurier institute christian thanks for the time hope you're well 
Scott, I'm not so well today because when I listen to how you introduce that story, I get a little bit worried about what exactly is going on in Ottawa and who exactly is looking out for our national interest. Have we turned? Is this a tipping point right here, Christian? Because a lot of people on either sides of the aisle are, are upset about this. It appears this has taken a new turn. Uh, how can everybody say they didn't know about it when Cease is saying that they did? The Katie Telford says. Everything that comes in, he sees. Who? Somebody's not telling the truth here. Uh, look, I, I have. A, there's. A, I, I'm just incredulous at what people are claiming and relative to what's actually going on. So let's take a step back here, right? So it's not like Michael Chong is any one backbench MP. Michael Chong is one of the longest sitting members of this house. And the official critic for Her Majesty's loyal opposition on foreign affairs. So this is the opposition's point person to critique the government of the day on its foreign affairs policies under being directly targeted by a hostile authoritarian government, not only himself, but his family and his broader relations um, within uh, ostensibly China's reach in the region in the Indo-Pacific. Security intelligence services are there to protect the foundations of our state. What could possibly be more foundational in a democracy than the people's elected representatives, let alone on this particular file of foreign affairs? If we have a security intelligence service who either cannot detect this, or if we have a bureaucracy and a government where we cannot get the most fundamental threats to the democratic institutions of this country, to the political executive of the day, to be actioned effectively, then A, who is looking out for our democratic institutions? And B, what in the world is going on in Ottawa in terms of people thinking, um, uh, that, that they're not going to share this type of intelligence. It is incredulous to me, Scott, incredulous that this information did not come to the political executive in a timely manner. This is why we have the National Security and Intelligence Advisor. That office was renamed from the National Security Advisor to the National Security Intelligence Advisor, and an office with 140 staff that are there to advise the prime minister. That somebody's telling me information on the official opposition's foreign affairs critic uh, being directly targeted by a hostile state did not make it from CSIS through the National Security Intelligence Advisor to the political executive, to me, I find not believable. So uh, you uh, gut tells you he knew about this. So I don't know if the prime minister knew about this for a reason that we've talked about before. So there's a principle called plausible deniability. So if the senior staff believe a particular piece of information could get the prime minister in trouble, then they will often hint at, you may not want to be here, prime minister, for this conversation or you probably don't want to know. And the prime minister will deliberately leave the room or the staff will shield the prime minister and not share certain types of information with the prime minister. 
So this is why the, the mere statements being made by the chief of staff that the prime minister sees everything and knows everything. So A, the prime minister is clearly not God. So I can't believe, you know, he's only one human being. And most of us have a hard time keeping up with our regular day jobs. I don't know about you, Scott, but I have a hard time keeping up. So I just can't see the prime minister seeing and knowing everything that's going on in government. So I find that statement highly problematic. And B, we know that governments intentionally do not share everything um, uh, with the prime minister precisely on the principle of plausible deniability. So I can possibly believe that the prime minister did not know. But of course, in this government, we have a chief of staff who has told Canadians that prime minister knows everything. So which one is it? Yeah. Um, the prime minister talks a lot about divisiveness in the opposition, breaking trust in institutions. Is he not creating divisiveness and lack of trust in institutions by throwing ceases under the bus this way? So I would say this is par for the course. And I find it deeply disturbing that there has been a trend um, in recent years in government to blame the civil service for decisions that are ultimately political decisions that were made by staff, by ministers in the prime minister's office, or by the prime minister. That ultimately civil servants swear an oath to this country to serve the government of the day to the best of their ability. So to claim that CSIS somehow did not come forward, again, um, I find deeply troubling because, again, this to me does not look believable because, uh, look, uh, as you know, where I'm employed uh, is within the civil service, only that as a professor, I have academic freedom that uh, those civil servants, every civil servant that I know does their very best job every day to serve the government of the day. So basically, the government is saying is the bureaucracy in the civil service did not do their job. And anytime I hear a government say that, I get uh, I get very nervous because the people that I know go out of their way to serve the government of the day. And so using that as an excuse to cover up what is much more likely failures uh, at the communications, the staffing, the coordination, or the level of the political executive, or perhaps a deliberate decision that this item would not be actioned because how convenient might it be uh, if we could get uh, a pesky foreign affairs critic uh, out of the way? Look, I don't want to be cynical, uh, but I am uh, I'm deeply disturbed by this story overall, and I'm even more troubled by the communications that we're seeing from the government on this story. Christian Leprac, Professor, Royal Military College of Canada, Queen's University, and fellow at the McDonnell-Laurie Institute. Fascinating discussion, Christian. We'll have another one. Uh, thanks so much. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Have a good afternoon. Latest re revelations in the situation regarding MP Michael Chong and his family being targeted over the last, uh, well, since the 2021 election in regard to uh, the Chinese Communist Party and such. Um, now the Prime Minister coming out today and demanding CSIS uh, bring this sort of information forth when it comes available, which is bizarre because if they don't bring this, what would they bring? I mean, this is a, a threat against a family here. Um, and now it's he says he did not know what was going on. Uh, CSIS says that they've given the Prime Minister all of this info, all to his office. His chief of staff says everything that comes into the office he sees and yet nobody knows or nobody knew that this was going on, yet the information's flying around the media like there is no tomorrow. Is this 
a case of somebody not telling the truth, or is it complete incompetence? Let's bring in Tasha Carradine, principal at Navigator, author of The Right Path, uh, the latest column in the National Post for her, Michael Ch- uh, MP Michael Chong, a symbol of how little Trudeau cares about protecting Canadians from Chinese interference. Tasha, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Thank you. So what are your thoughts on all of this, especially Trudeau now coming out and saying, you know, we've directed CSIS that now they should uh, bring this information forward when we've heard through reports that this information is readily available and, and, and his chief of staff saying nothing gets past him. So what's going on, Tasha? Well, I think that's something a lot of people would like to know, because yesterday the prime minister and his public safety minister dodged the question as to when they knew um, about this information. They didn't answer. And today he made a grand answer saying, well, I only knew when it came out in the Globe and Mail, basically when media reports came out and then threw the blame through shade on thesis, like bad thesis. They briefed Michael Chong, but they didn't obviously tell him this and they should have because it's a level, you know, I believe they should, you know, have to have, have divulged even if they didn't think so. Well, there's two problems here. One is the flip-flop in the sense of, you know, staying mum and suddenly being really categorical about when you knew um, and that, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people are saying, well, I hate to say it, but is this true? <laughs> is he selling the full truth here? We don't know. Second is the fact that the prime minister would be directing thesis, because here's the thing. OK, uh, in the U.S., you've got the FBI, you've got the CIA. They're independent of government. Politicians don't direct them. Right. Canada, we have the RCMP and thesis, both under political direction. And that is a problem, whether he's directing them to do something we think they should do, because the flip side is you can direct them to do something that maybe people think they shouldn't do. And that that political oversight is an issue. It is is a problem for our our intelligence forces, because if they are called on to investigate the very people who have authority over them, i.e. the prime minister, how can they do it? They can't because it'll get stopped at the prime minister's door. So that is a problem. Uh, He makes it sound as if he's now informed CSIS that the next time this happens involving an MP or their family, they're to let them know. Would that not be standard procedure if you don't tell uh, the prime minister that a family is being threatened or used by the Chinese Communist Party? What constitutes warning him? Well, right. I mean, it does seem to that would rise to the threshold if there's a risk to to. Um, the life of family members or the well-being that you would inform the prime minister and you would inform the MP in question. I agree that probably that should have been done. I don't know if it wasn't done, why it wasn't done. Um, but again, uh, the fact that he's making a big fuss now and saying that I am now ordering them to do this. Well, people may applaud that and say, gee, they should have done it. But again, like I said, it means it's political, basically it's political control over our intelligence sources, which is not the way you want to have intelligence operate. You want them to be at arm's length from government. So this is the problem is that a number of reports, this is exactly what Michelle Juno Katsuya, who's a former thesis agent, has been telling the media since late 1999 and 1997. He wrote a report about the government of the day saying that there was Chinese infiltration in 1997. That report, the whole investigation got basically quashed because it was investigating people that were very close to the PMO, close to the Liberal Party, close to business circles they were in. And gee, how odd that it suddenly the whole operation basically just, you know, ended, disappeared. This is the point, is that when government can pronounce itself on intelligence, they won't want it to investigate themselves. So that has to change, too, going forward. 
Uh, he he's repeating today that it's about a CSIS threshold. CSIS didn't think that it met the threshold. He keeps pushing it back to them. This is not, in my mind, Tasha, about a CSIS threshold. This is about what he knew and when. And the whole CSIS threshold thing is just a distraction. Well, it's like throwing people under the bus. It's the same with Jody Wilson-Raybould, Gerald Butts, and he threw them Big under the time. bus during the Edison Peak Lavalin affair. So this is now... Jesus is getting thrown under the bus writ large. Um, and that is also, I agree with you, the real question is when he knew. And he's now saying, I didn't know until Monday this week. But yesterday, like I said, there was no answer forthcoming. It was radio silence. So all of a sudden he knows when he didn't know. It's fishy. It's strange. You, you, you wonder. And if he didn't know, then, you know, that that's obviously a problem. But you can't imagine that if Jesus had this information that they wouldn't have because they were all over the Chinese interference issue for the past few years. They've been pumping out reports on this and, yeah. they've been and linking it to the media. How they come the media it. knows, but the PMO doesn't? Well, I think maybe there's a frustration. Um, yeah. Things were known and didn't get done. So people leaked. So uh, also the prime minister will point at the opposition, specifically the conservatives and say that they're dividing Canadians. They're confusing. Conf- uh, they're creating confusion and lack of trust in our Canadian institutions. And then he throws CSIS under the bus. He <laughs> is the one that is creating the division and confusion around our government institutions. He's calling them out. Yeah, it's a paradox, and I agree. And it's you can't have it both ways, right? Either you trust thesis for what they do, or they're you know you you say they're they're not they're not functioning. You can't have it you know one day one thing and one day another. Um, I think that, that the challenge for this government is that they have had information since the last election, in particular the 2021 election, and nothing's been done. Um, nothing concrete. The foreign agents registry, which the conservatives had called for two years ago, and which was recommended. Um, by various intelligence operatives has not happened yet. They're still in the consultation phase until the end of this week. Well, what is left to consult on? Um, Other countries have done this. It is really a no-brainer. And, you know, they're giving a space in this case to have people come out on the other side and say, oh, it's going to be racist, it's anti-Chinese. Well, guess what? The Chinese diaspora in this country is asking for it because they know they need their protection, right? It's, It's totally backwards. And so that speaks volumes. The inaction speaks volumes. Also, if he didn't know until Monday, um, why is the diplomat still here? Why is he not expelled now that this has been all confirmed, even if it wasn't if he didn't even understand it until Monday? Yeah, that's I was waiting for you to get to that one, too, because that's the second shoe that's dropped um, is that this individual is still here and still has diplomatic status and is still, you know, in our country. Why? We've known that now for several days. Um, this individual, the prime minister should have immediately said, we are going to take steps to have, have this person's diplomatic status revoked. They have to go back. Um, he hasn't even done that. Like, it's not even, you know, you can't maybe do it one day to the next, but he could start the steps at least. He should have done that. And they haven't been done. So again, that it speaks volumes as to why, you know, and Kenny Chu, another conservative MP who claims he lost his seat because of uh, interference in the last election his be- he, he summed it up best on Twitter. It's like WTF. Why? Why are none of yeah, these yeah. done? <laughs> so where does this go? Because I've heard people, say, experts say Canadians don't care about this. I find that hard to believe. Yeah, I think um, foreign affairs and foreign policy issues are, they're never ballot questions. Traditionally, everyone will yeah. tell you that. However, when it goes to this and the ability to trust your leaders, it's a different 
thing. Um, it's not just about you know can, can Canada protecting Canadian sovereignty. It's about is the prime minister telling us the truth? Is the prime minister trustworthy? Is the prime minister acting in Canada's interest? Those kinds of questions get really nasty. And a lot of people who are prepared not to trust Justin Trudeau see this as another reason. It's added to that whole basket of things. So he already has a trust deficit with a lot of people. And this could tip some over the edge. Um, so it is, I think, going to be uh, an ongoing issue. And it's, you know, it's dripping. Every week there's a new revelation in the Globe and Mail or in Global News and CBC. And so, you know, it's not going away. Uh, a basket of deplorables on the other side. Who would have thunk? Uh, Tasha Kiridin with us, principal at Navigator, author of The Right Path. You can read her latest in the National Post. MP Michael Chong, a symbol of how little Trudeau cares about protecting Canadians from Chinese interference. Tasha, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks, you too. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, Scott Radley, and you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator, host of the Scott Radley Show. He is here now, Scott. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for taking the time. I am always happy to take the time, Scott. Uh, you know, what do you talk about? A disappointing Leafs game or the Prime Minister? Hmm, let me weigh that. All right, let's talk about the Leafs. <laughs> I thought so you, you, you probably could have put the word disappointing in front of both of them. You chose only one for the adjective. Oh, I can't. I know, but you know, I don't want to get angry while I'm talking well, to you it's, and, it's, and and going into your show. No, you let's, know? let's we'll get to the Leafs in just ten seconds. But uh, your guest that you had on just before I came on here at the very end when she talked about the trust deficit and said some people may not may not believe the prime minister. Look, I don't believe that at this point. There is anybody who is not in one of the two camps. You're either an absolute Trudeau disciple and nothing he can possibly do will <laughs> shake your view that he is the best <laughs> choice, or you're an absolute believer that he is, pick your word, but among those who you can trust and those who just is in it for himself and there is nobody in the middle. Who could possibly be in the middle camp at this point, Scott? How could you possibly not have an opinion? Uh, you know, uh, Katie Telford, his chief of staff, says nothing is ever kept from him. He hears everything that comes into the office. CISA's heads have said since 2019 this information has come to them in reports. And now he says he didn't find out till Monday. How can that possibly be? It's either complete incompetence or it's not true. Well, weren't they asked about this yesterday or the day before and they didn't have an answer when they heard yes. about it. But then yes. today they all say it was Monday. Well, if it was Monday, why would you not just have said yesterday, we only heard about it on Monday? Why, why, why do you need two days to remember what happened two days ago? Because you're trying to get all your lies in a row. Well, I, I don't know if it's, it, whatever it is, I just go back to your point with your previous guest. I don't think there is a person in this country that has not made up their mind about where they stand on Justin Trudeau. I think it's impossible for anyone not to have at this point. I think it's impossible for anybody not to see the truth here. I don't know how anybody can believe this guy knows absolutely nothing about anything. And then he accuses the opposition of being divisive and sowing seeds of doubt about Canadian institutions institutions, and then he throws CSIS under the bus, saying, I've told them now, well, if yeah. this happens again, okay, you bring it to my attention. Who is believing that? Okay, that this may be, now, you know, look, I, I'm not going to discuss whether or not I think Justin Trudeau is a very, very bright man, but this is one of the dumbest things. So you're dealing with leaks coming from CSIS. Yeah. And so what you do is throw them under the bus. You know what's going to happen with these leaks now, Scott? They're going to open up the faucet and it's going <laughs> yeah. to... Yeah. Nothing like taking the group that is already having, you're having some issues with and saying to the rest of the world, oh, pff, 
It's on them. Good luck with that now. Good luck with Global News and the Globe and Mail are not going to have enough staff to keep up with the leaks that are coming out now. I'm just saying, it's not maybe not the brightest strategy. It's amazing he didn't know, yet everyone else seemed to, whether it's from leaks through the media or anything. I mean, it's just, and, 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 and if you didn't know, wouldn't you at least raise your hand and start asking questions? Again, I find it, uh, I find it appalling, appalling that he's calling other people divisive while he is throwing CSIS under the bus. And it's not the first time he has done this. I, I, do you think this will have legs or, no, or do you think like no, nobody gives a damn about this? No, nobody cares. Because of the very thing that I started with. You you have either been firmly now ensconced in his camp where anything that happens is the responsibility of the evil Pierre Polyev or some other group, or you are firmly in the camp that think that he's an idiot and that's it. And so there is nobody who is changing opinions or minds. And so this will be here until the next thing comes along next week or the week after. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You what can read him in your Hamilton. What about nah, the Yeah, yeah. So what? We'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, that'd just get me as pissed off as I am now. Uh, Scott Radley hosting the Scott Radley Show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great one. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. This last word from Mr. Lowe. Wow. I will be fair, Sarah Gemma. This is strike two for you with your recent post. Next time, it's strike three and you're out. You are the representative of all people in your writing, not just a select few. If Jack Layton was still leader of the federal NDP, possibly, you would now be asked to move on. 